Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. We begin with a piece of listener mail from Richard Addy, who wanted to know, what's the one thing you've eaten during lockdown slash quarantine that surprised you the most? This is an interesting way of saying, <laughs> like, oh, I, I was rummaging through the dumpster, and lo and behold, these old fish bones were amazing. Um, is there anything you've, you've made or tasted since we've been stuck at home that, I don't know, surprised you or, or that you uh, discovered? I have to say, a lot has not surprised me because I've eaten a pretty predictable diet. Um, I go mostly vegetarian when I cook at home these days, but... The other day, I really wanted to make meatballs. I just had a hankering for meatballs. And I go to the grocery store, and they didn't have eggs. And Oy. I quickly do a quick Google substitution. Ricotta cheese can be substituted for eggs and meatballs. They were incredible. They That's were brilliant. fluffy. They were tender. They were juicy. They were flavorful. I will never make meatballs without ricotta again. <laughs> we've, we've, uh, we've, we're in three different phases of food. We are trying to support our local businesses as much as we can. The ones that are mm-hmm. still open as far as ordering takeout, um, whenever we can. Uh, we are eating real quick things because, uh, it's been long days. So because you don't have enough time. Well, no, it's more like we're just exhausted. So we just throw some, like a Trader Joe's pre-made, uh, um, like fried rice into the pan and just mm-hmm. warm it up being, you know, we have we have a whole routine of going to Trader Joe's on when to go and all that jive because every time you go there's a line now, and um, the third thing is adventurous cooking. So two things that we've made recently that are really good. Uh, it's asparagus season. If you like pasta, shaved asparagus, just cut it real thin, um, cook it that way. It, it lends an interesting texture to pasta. And uh, just make sure that you lemon it up and throw some lemon zest in there, too, with garlic and shallots. It's really good. And the other thing was, uh, I think we mentioned um, uh, on this podcast before that Ruby and I took a cheese-making class at one point. Uh, she has continued that education at home. She's been making goat cheese. So we did a goat cheese uh, stuffed chicken breast. So like kind of like a cordon bleu type kind of situation where you, you stuff the, the cheese in the chicken and then you bake it. And uh, that was awesome. I highly recommend if you're, if you're somebody who's got a bunch of chicken breasts and you don't know what to do with them, stuff them with stuff. Like just you know, slit them open and stuff them with stuff and uh, and bake them. And it's always going to be really, really tasty and, and everything's good. I can't believe you preface this entire thing with if you like pasta. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't want to judge. Uh, coming up on ESPN on Ice today, um, a very special guest. Lots of talk about neutral zone playoffs and all that and more uh, on this edition. So let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey, featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. Hey, everybody. It's ESPN on ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I'm Greg Wyshynski, senior NHL writer and probably on-hold wrestling writer. They don't need me until the next pay-per-view, I'm imagining. Uh, but happy two-day WrestleMania, everybody. Boy, what an exciting time that was, wasn't it? I'm glad you had something to write about that was live, because I'm Emily Kaplan, a national hockey and pandemic reporter. I wouldn't say it's live. I, a lot of it was taped, <laughs> and that's a good thing, because they were able to make scary mini-movies. Um and it, it was good good television outside of Rob, Rob, Rob Kronkowski. Um, 
life in quarantine for the NHL continues. The pause continues. The next update on on players being able to leave their uh, their their places is going to be like around April fifteenth, of course. Seth Jones uh, returned to the ice this week to the surprise of many, but it turns out he's allowed to, which was a, a, a good thing for Seth. It is, you know, he's rehabbing, so there is some provisions in the NHL's mandates that if you are rehabbing, you're able to use your team facility. Um, what's interesting to me is that. There's pretty much no other player in North America who has access to ice. There is no player I know of who has an in-home rink or anything like that. However, the players who went back to Europe, specifically to Sweden, have access to ice. I was video chatting with a couple of my Swedish friends, Jonathan Linquist and Kaisa Kalmius and uh, Uffe Boden, and they were talking about the players who went home, and they're like, yeah, Sweden, we've got no lockdown mandates. You should read the New York Times story about it. It's pretty fascinating. Um but players are able to skate there, which is interesting. But here in North America, they can't, um, mm-hmm. except for Seth Jones. There you go. So count the number of Swedes on each team if they ever come back to play to find out which teams are probably going to win the cup. Yeah, the Sabres are, are in good shape. I think they've got a couple. <laughs> I, was thinking, I was thinking Colorado Atlantis Cog. Oh, yeah. Uh, They're important Swedes. Other. Yeah, I guess some. Oh, an important Swede. Miko Mibi is just chilling with Landeskog right now. What was yep. interesting, I think I talked about this on last show, but a bunch of the guys took a charter back. Um, I believe it was organized by either the Avalanche Swedes or the Sabres Swedes. I think it was the Avalanche Swedes. And um, all the Finns and Swedes got on one big charter, 100K total, and wow. uh, got the hell home. I can't believe the Buffalo Swedes didn't want to hang out in Buffalo during a quarantine. Yeah. Um, the other big news this week, obviously, we reported <laughs> on this on Monday in our, our Monday news roundup. If you're not reading it, you really should. It's a great way uh, every to start every week uh, if you still consider weeks to have shape and form at this point um, to catch you up on all the news that's happening uh, and that has happened over the weekend and so far as the NHL season pause. The big news this week, as we reported, uh, the NHL considering many models for what to do if the season restarts in the summer, one of them is kind of using what the NBA and the and MLB are both sniffing around right now, which is the idea of a quote-unquote neutral site, uh, empty arena setup for the playoffs. Um, now, first off, if they do this, it ain't going to be one, one place. It's going to be multiple sites, most likely regional sites um, where different series will be held. Uh, they will obviously do things to cut down on travel, they're trying to do the controlled environment type situation where the, you know, I'm sure it's going to be like professional wrestling where people are being actually, uh, having their temperature taken as they enter the building to make sure that they don't, they're not running a fever. Um, and, and the environment would not necessarily have to be NHL arenas as we talked about in the, in the piece. Um, they're exploring all options for any rinks that have NHL Sized ice and decent facilities are going to be on the table. I know Elliot Friedman reported North Dakota. Uh, John Shannon reported Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, the All options are going to be on the table for where to do these neutral site games um, and neutral site series if it happens. But the two coolest things, Emily, about this, in my opinion, are one, if they end up restarting in this manner and shape for the playoffs, it's going to be like World Cup. Like you're going to have games throughout the day in order to get these series done in a timely manner. And that is cool. Like if we're still stuck at home and you're telling me, Hey, it's noon, you know, the flyers are playing the penguins. Okay. That'd be all right. And then the other thing too, is that if they're doing them in smaller venues, 
they're going to be able to make it a completely made-for-television event. They're going to be able to kind of create new camera angles and camera setups. They're going to be able to present this thing in ways that they couldn't present it in a, a large cavernous arena just because there are fans in the way. And I think they're going to be able to design it in a way where, yes, there's going to be empty stands. Yes, there's not I mean, there's not going to be a lot of sound uh, going on from, from fans cheering and stuff. They're going to be able to create an environment, I think, based on the conversations I've had with people in the league about this possibility where it is going to be a really telegenic event and is not going to make you paralyzingly depressed because you're trying to hold a hockey game in a 19,000-seat arena without any fans. All right. We're going to do a little role reversal here. Greg was playing the optimist. I'll be the cynic. <laughs> I will tell you the two things that are problematic with this plan because I hear this and I just can't wrap my head around this possibly happening. One, logistics. You mentioned, okay, um, yes, it's not, it's going to be in more than one arena. It's not going to just be the NHL descending upon Grand Forks, North Dakota, wherever it may be. Um, it's still getting everybody there. Yeah, even if it's just a fourth of the people in the playoffs, getting hotel availability in a town like Grand Forks isn't exactly going to be easy. I mentioned all of the players that went to Europe. What if the borders are closed? Are we just going to send them unchartered flights? Like, what what are the logistics there? Can everybody physically make it? Two, this, the issue that I see is that we know that Gary Bettman had this phone call with President Trump and other sports commissioners over the weekend, and the one newsy thing that came out of it was Trump saying, I want to have fans back in the arenas by and stadiums by August or September. And that was all fine and well, and it was aspirational. But Trump doesn't get to make that call, and neither do the sports commissioners. It's, as we've said multiple, multiple times, local health authorities and local governments. And there's such an inherent risk with taking the NHL and the circus that is the playoffs, even as is a very, very, very scaled-down version, to a remote area like North Dakota, where maybe the governor there is like, hey, it's okay, and potentially risking and the health of the people who live there in a remote area where they don't have the infrastructure for hospitals that they have in big cities, that worries me a ton. And the potential for risk that the NHL would be taking on, I just can't see it happening with the way we've seen the trajectory of this disease. Like, I can't I can't envision a situation where this happens by July or August. Yeah, and then on top of that, you have to deal with the fact that it's not simply just the players. It's it's staff. It's cameramen and women. It's mm-hmm. um, it's us. Everybody, everybody who yeah, everybody Maybe. who puts on the show. Zamboni drivers, you know, Dan Craig making the ice. All these people uh, are going to be in this situation too. So it's it's an inherent risk, and and you know there are apparent you know there are obviously ways to try to mitigate risk. Like we said, by keeping tabs on anybody who might be infected and that kind of thing. But that only carries you so far because you have asymptomatic people that don't run a fever uh, and, and aren't sick. Um, and then what happens there? So it's, it, it, yeah, there's inherently a lot of problems with any of these ideas of let's get the band back together and play in an empty building. That's for sure. One other thing I'll add is that this is all contingent on that fast testing, like you mentioned, and that being available um, to the scale that the NHL would need it. As we know in this country, there's a shortage of tests, and that's assuming that we can mass produce this and have this available for private organizations like the NHL by then. And again, we've seen companies step up and say it's possible, but I'm not quite sure, and I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, and and then what happens when you get a positive test? Imagine starting the playoffs, then all of a sudden, like, you know, 
somebody's goalie tests positive for COVID-19 and the NHL is like, you got your goalie can't play in the playoffs anymore. And they're just like, what? <laughs> and it's not only that, but then it's like, okay, who could he be infected on the team? The entire team can't play in the playoffs. Right. And, and right. And the whole, the whole way we got into this pickle was the fact that there was a positive test in the NBA. And then everybody was like, all right, first positive test for an athlete, in one of these sports, that's it. Shut it all down. Um, um, I, yeah, listen, it's, it's a lot of pie in the sky. Uh, but they're, they're obviously trying to figure out ways to complete the season. And they're also, let's not be Pollyanna about it, trying to figure out ways to open the faucet to revenue that they currently aren't getting in order to put a tourniquet on the amount of money they're losing this season. And although it's a gate contingent league, I mean, there's going to be ways to make money off of television playoffs. Um, I was chatting with somebody in the, in the NHL, NHL the other day. I'm like, just make it look like Europe. Just put ads literally all over the ice and all over the players. Just do it for one summer. And tattoo stick it on it. their faces. Yeah, stick them in those NASCAR it. uniforms with all the ads. Like you see guys and they go over and play in Switzerland. Who cares? Just sell it all if you can. Sponsor everything. That Alex Ovechkin shot on goal was sponsored by Valvoline. You know, who cares? <laughs> just, just sell everything uh, if you can. The thing about it, though, is that we're in April, right? Like, it feels like we should be in December of 2025 because that's how long life feels right now. But we're in April. And if you think about April versus March, you think about March versus February, a lot of stuff happens in the span of a month, in the span of weeks. And, um, yeah, I'm optimistic, which really does defy my New Jersey upbringing. But I, I do believe that waiting is okay. And I've, I've read some, some stuff recently about, you know, cancel the season, stop the charade, yada, yada, yada. Don't. I mean, like, who, who cares? Like. Greg, didn't you write cancel the season? I, I wrote cancel the regular season. That's different. Okay. Okay. Not cancel the okay. season. Regular okay. season, you cancel it, you get some money in the pockets of fans and workers. Canceling the full season, to me, is way premature because it's April. And maybe if you get to Memorial Day and we're still in the thick of this, then then maybe the conversation needs to happen. Uh, or if it gets to Father's Day or if it gets to July 4th. But I just think that right now, yeah, it looks very daunting. But give it a couple months. Who the hell even knows what it's going to look like? And that right. might be the, the overly optimistic view of it. But I just think it's it's hasty right now to even make any of these decisions based on the fact that there's a lot of runway left. I'll agree with the NHL on that. There's a lot of runway left. And uh, and there's not a need right now to cancel the full entirety of the season when we don't even know what life is going to look like in May, let alone July. And the last point that I'll make is I totally agree with that. Um, but some of these ideas do feel aspirational. And I hope in some of these calls with the NHL GMs and the Board of Governors that they're listening to alternative ideas and guys like Steve Mayer, the chief content officer, and saying, how can we get our product in front of fans if we can't put on these events that we want to in neutral sites? The NBA is talking about a horse competition of players. Okay, it's easy that guys, a lot of them have home gyms, but could we make some kind of trick shot competition from players filmed at low budget that we can air on NBC? Probably. You know, Probably. you mentioned before this call the event that we did, Top Golf at the All Star Game. <laughs> you could recreate that. Get guys go to stand on their roof and shoot into their backyards to their neighbors. Like we could find other ways to bring hockey to the forefront. They've done this with these Zoom calls, which 
if they haven't been perfect, but they're at least putting players and their voices and their faces into the hands of journalists and therefore the fans. And I think that's a positive step. Let's just take that one step further and get a little more creative here. Yeah. I look forward to the first scandal where a guy from San Jose makes this incredible trick shot. And then it turns out that Industrial Light and Magic did the special effects to make it look <laughs> like he actually hit a shot that he didn't. That's the kind of scandal that we need in life right now. Anyway, here's our guest. And now joining us on the line, he's now a Sportsnet personality, but most people know him as a former general manager of the Leafs, Ducks, Canucks, Whalers, as well as the 2010 U.S. Winter Olympic team. He also is the father of longtime ESPN on Ice listener and frequent or recent guest, Patrick Burke. Brian, <laughs> thank you. Brian Burke, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Greg and Emily. Yeah, we had your son on a little while ago. He was an entertaining guest, so we'll see how you do. Uh, I'm just curious. <laughs> the new talk in the NHL right now is about having a centralized playoff location possibility in North Dakota or Saskatchewan or New Hampshire or somewhere remote. Just in all of your years in the league, I would love your perspective of when you hear this. What do you think? Is this a realistic option? Is this a good option? Well, any any option that gets us back on the ice is a good option. So let's start there. It's not like anything we've seen before, but this year, this this life, this world we're living in is nothing like we've ever seen before. So in my mind, the NHL's dogged determination to play, as soon as the authorities say we can play, do I want to play games in North Dakota in front of no fans? No. Do I think we should if we can? Absolutely. We've got to get this game back on the ice and back on TV even if the live audience comes later. And we got to try to finish the regular season if possible. If not, we have to try to award a Stanley Cup in a credible playoff format. So to me, I love the league's approach. Um, is it ideal? No, but not much of our life is right now. Exactly. Um, and, and that's why you know the people saying just cancel the season, I think, are a bit premature. I mean, who, who knows what life's going to look like in two months uh, I don't think any of us thought life could look like this two months ago. So who's to say? You did mention credible format for the playoffs. Is, in Brian Burke's world, what what would be the uh, the most credible way to do it um, if it did involve expanding it a bit to include some bubble teams? Well, I don't I don't think that's going to be possible. I think that is pie in the sky. I think you're talking credible is three rounds, eight teams. They can need a minimum of three rounds, which would be eight teams. Expanded playoffs would be great because of the unusual nature of things, but I, I don't think we're, first off, I don't think we're going to play. I don't think this pandemic is going to solve itself in time to play. And they're worried about a secondary wave anyhow. I don't think we'll have a vaccine operable by the summertime. I'll bet substantial money on that. I don't think we'll have enough testing materials to determine if it's even safe with the guys we have. So let's assume we can surmount all those obstacles. Um, if they want to do an expanded playoff format, we've got enough days and building dates, fine with me, just for this year. My worry is, if, if let's say there's a miracle cure discovered tomorrow, which ain't going to happen, and they say, okay, you can play on June 1st, well, then we would have time to do an expanded playoff format and let in you know 18 or 24 teams or whatever the right number is. My fear about that is, Greg, that this would be opening the door for expanded playoff format for the future, which I do not support. I think 16 teams is plenty. Um, but for this year, yeah, I could live with that. If we had the time and the building dates, great. We're not going to, but if we do, great. Brian, you've been really involved with USA Hockey over the year. I'm just over the years. I'm just curious if you've thought at all about how this pandemic could affect youth participation in this country um, going forward. 
Well, I don't think I don't think anything's going to change in terms of importance at the amateur level. I mean, all of us all of us want to expose our children to sports. Some are athletes, some are not. But the benefits of being part of a team sport and the physical benefits, the psychological benefits. If you look at the business leaders and political leaders in both countries, Canada and the U.S., the number of guys, women and men that played sports to a certain level is significant. It's not. It's an indicator. It's not a. It's not an unusual circumstance. It's an indicator. And so it builds character, builds teamwork, builds physical fitness. I don't think that's ever going to change. Uh, I'm concerned about what kind of an economic landscape we're coming back to in terms of how many people are still going to write big checks for season tickets and so on. I know the demand will be pent up, like in the past from lockouts and things. We've come back really strong. I'm just worried about people's financial ability to still participate. I I have season tickets here in Toronto. They're not inexpensive. I don't know how the average person's going to write that check this year. That's a really good point. And I mean, when we came back from 05, it wasn't, I mean, it, I mean, economics weren't great back then, but it wasn't into a full on, you know, economic crisis recession like we're in now with unemployment probably hitting, you know, between 25 and 30% or something crazy like that. Do you, do you see teams taking the extra step, slashing prices for season tickets and that sort of thing? Or do, they, do you think that it's going to be like 05 where they know there's going to be demand and there's going to be people that pay those prices? So, you know, you might be limiting your audience, but you're still going to get people that pay the premium. Or do you think that they have to kind of bend over backwards and, and lower ticket prices for the first time? Well, I think it'll depend on the market. Um, if if we get to play and say there are eight playoff teams, they're, they're not going to cut their prices. Those eight teams that made the playoffs and teams right. that were in a playoff position but did not get to play because of the, the different format – I don't think they'd do much discounting, but non-playoff team markets might have to. We'll wait and see. We'll wait and see how long this goes and how quickly the economy comes back. It'd be lovely to come back to just what we left. Unemployment instantly restored to what it was. Uh, everyone back to work. Open your doors. Let's go. I just don't think that's realistic. Yeah, I feel you. All right, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is because you did a wonderful thing for fans the other day, which was to open up your Twitter feed to some Brian Burke tales from the past, which I know are going to be some of the things uh, we're all looking forward to in this book you're putting together, which is going to be a, a hell of a read. One thing I wanted to ask you about, because it was actually sort of in the news today, I don't know if you've d- addressed it yet on, on the radio, but uh, you said that you tried to get Joe Thornton to Anaheim and that you thought that you had an offer uh, that uh, beat whatever the Sharks were offering Michael Connell. Um, you know, You said you were going to protect five guys in your roster. He could take the one ranked sixth or above, no restrictions. And O'Connell told The Athletic today, and I'll quote you, I'll quote him, he said, The details surrounding this story are fabricated, and I can confirm that no such offer was made to me as I never informed Anaheim of my intentions to trade Joe Thornton. Unfortunately, certain personalities never let the truth get in the way of their ultimate goal, self-promotion. Any reaction to that from O'Connell? I just got tipped off about this just a few minutes ago. It's unfortunate because Mike and I were friends once. Um after the day after I did the Q and A, he called me and he was quite upset. He said, "Well, this never happened." I said, "Hang on a second, hang on a second. I can see you're saying I got a detail wrong. And maybe, maybe it was uh, maybe it was six players I'd protect, but you're telling me this never happened. That's that's your answer." And he said, "Yeah." He said, "You fabricated this." I said, "Well, first off, I wish we were in the same room. If you're gonna call me a liar. I wish we were in the same room because I've been accused of many things, but certainly not being." untruthful 
I said, second problem you have, Mike, is that I wasn't alone when I made this offer. Bob Murray was sitting there right at my desk. And it was, in fact, it was Bob who came in and he said, look, I heard they're trading him to San Jose. We've got to hijack this trade. And so I called him, and he said, let's protect six, and then we'll, he said, no, we better make it better, and that will protect five. And I called and made the offer with Bob Murray sitting three feet away. So I think it's a bizarre defense. He knows he made a bad deal. He got yeah. a lot of heat afterwards for not shopping it properly. You know, when you're going to trade a player of that caliber, you got to offer him to every team that might have an interest and get the best offer you can. He tried to move him quietly, didn't make a good deal, and I guess he's taking it out on me. But... Um, my answer would be that there were two people in the room. That's a bizarre defense. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Berkey, just just to, just so we're clear, even if a detail or two maybe gotten lost in translation, the call happened. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Well, another share story you shared. Someone asked for your favorite Phil Kessel story, and I loved your response. It was essentially an anecdote about a time Phil was getting crushed by the media in Toronto. And you said, do you want me to go on a rant or yell at a reporter to take some heat off you? And he said, no, I only care about the guys in the room. I appreciate it, but save your breath. I'm good. I would love if you could just share a little bit more about what it was like managing Phil Kessel, because he's such a fascination for so many of us because he doesn't share a lot of his personality um, publicly. But what was it like watching him in Toronto, especially the way the media uh, treated him or handled him? Well, he he doesn't care, and that that's an asset for an athlete to not care what the media think or what fans think. It's an asset. It allows you to play through the white noise. But it's really annoying to fans who think you should care what they think about yeah. you. It's very perverted. It's it's a, it's a inverted relationship where it's like you, Emily, you should care what I think about you, and if you don't, you're a bad person. And you're like, you go to bed every night, not worrying what Brian Burke thinks of you, as you should. So for Phil, it was a double whammy. He didn't care. But the fans thought he should have. So they, they whatever unhappiness they have with him intensified. And he's an American in a Canadian market. There's a bit of that, too. But what I liked about having him was he didn't care. He played well for us. He was a very popular teammate. And one thing people won't know, because he never does it on cameras, he's a cancer survivor, and he would go... If we brought in any kid who was suffering from cancer, Phil, not not one of the reporters in the room, but Phil would go right over to that young boy or girl and talk to him for an hour. He'd give him an hour. He'd sign a stick for him. He'd talk to him about his treatment for cancer. Uh, he was wonderful like that. But if there was a reporter in the room, not a chance. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and a guy his teammates loved, too, for sure, behind the scenes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, you uh, famously were with the, the Mighty Whale for a long time. I know you got a complicated relationship with some people regarding Hartford because you got rid of Brass Bonanza. But, <laughs> but more to the point, do you ever, do you ever see a situation or a path back to the NHL for Hartford to ever get a franchise again? No. I mean, it's too bad because it was a great, great place to live. When things were great there, Pratt and Whitney was employing, I want to say 10,000 people at their, aircraft engine manufacturing plant and all its insurance companies were based in Hartford and West Hartford. And um, what happened is right before I got there, I was only there for a year. I was there in 91, 92, um, 92, 93, excuse me. And um, right, right before I got there in the three to four years before I got there, a number of the insurance companies relocated to Manhattan. And th- those, those are thousands and thousands of jobs, big companies, you know, 
20, 30, 40,000 jobs, well-paying jobs, good jobs that moved down. Pratt & Whitney closed. That's another 10,000 union jobs. So there was so much bleeding out of the out of the local economy of money that when I got to Hartford, um, the year I worked there as a gym, I loved living there. I lived in Simsbury, which is west of the city, and it's a great place to live, great people. Uh, but at 5 o'clock, um, well, 5.30, once the, the commute cleared out, you, you could set off a Claymore mine on, on Trumbull Street and not hurt a soul. Like, downtown emptied right out at night, unless there was a concert, unless we were playing, or unless UConn basketball was playing. So it was dev- the whole area was devastated economically and has not recovered. Uh, so, no, I cannot see a path back for them. I wish I had a better answer. And for Brass Bonanza... I did. I got crucified for getting rid of it. The players asked me to get rid of it. They said it was embarrassing to have a fight song. Fair enough. No, I, hey, listen, I, listen, it's an acquired taste. And I know that half the NHL writers in this league have it as their ringtone. But if the players don't want it, you gotta listen to the players, right? So all they put it in, as soon as they got rid of me, or as soon as I left, they put it back in, so. <laughs> And people did. People are outraged. People really love the song. And I'm they like, do. Yeah, I, I, I could care less, right? Like, I care about game presentation, but if fans like a song generally, then I like it too. Okay, so some of the arena music that we have, I don't like, but fans like it. They get to, It's about what they like. But the players came to me before the season started and said, you know, we go on the ice. It's like a college fight song, stupid and we feel like college players are going to get rid of it. And I said, then it's gone. If it's affecting our ability to win, it's gone. But, uh, no, it was, they put it in as soon as I got out of there. <laughs> you mentioned you don't see the NHL going back to Hartford. Is there a U.S. city or market that you think would be a really good NHL city or market? I think there's a couple markets that could support hockey, but I think our league's big enough. I, I don't want to expand after Seattle. I hope, uh, this is here's, so. Here's the thing. So you add all these teams. It's been great for hockey. Their GM jobs, their player jobs, their coaches jobs. We've added some really good markets. I don't see that many more, and I worry at some point we travel enough now. Do we need to add cities to the grid? Do we need to add travel to the grid? Um, so I'm not in favor of expanding anymore. I think Houston could support a team. I'm not convinced that Portland, Oregon could, but I would listen on that. Um, but uh, there's not a long list of cities with, with building availability and population mass. I think our smallest population mass outside of Canada, I want to say, is Columbus. And um, I'm not sure you can go much smaller than that and still support a team. Yeah. All right, last one for me, Berkey, and thank you so much for doing this. You're writing a book. It's awesome. We're very excited for it. But what was your motivation in writing this book? Well, I got asked to write this book when I was uh, after we won the cup in, her, in uh, Anaheim in 2007, and I said no. There's too many more chapters to write. And then um, about I don't know, it was the sixth or eighth person that asked me, "Look, I, I want to write your book. I want to write your book." And I thought, "Well, I'll start writing it myself." So my last year in Calgary, um, I had some spare time on my hands. You know, they they were consulting me less and less, and um, <laughs> so I started writing an outline, and then flying back and forth to see my daughters from Calgary. So you got three hours on the plane one way and three hours and 45 minutes going back and uh, started filling it in. So I wrote about 200 pages of it, single space myself. Wow. 
Um, so then I went to, I approached a, uh, an agent and said, do you think there's interest here? And got two book offers right away. So uh, then I went to work on it. So it's 90% done. It's not done, but uh, almost done. And it'll come out in the fall. That's awesome. Can't wait. I was going to ask about your quarantine, you know, daily routine is like, is writing a big part of it now? Uh, the manuscript went in a couple of weeks ago with the last set of changes, and then this final rewrite will start probably this afternoon when I get a copy of it back. So I'm just waiting to get a copy of it back, and then, yes, it will. The rest of this week will involve trying to finalize it, and uh, and then I'll go through the normal checks, legal will check it and so on. And, and uh, it, it's an interesting process. You don't make a lot of money writing a book. If that's why you're writing a book, um, you're probably making a mistake, but I want to tell my story. There's so many things that are interesting to me. Awesome. Well, we cannot wait to read it, and we really do appreciate your time, Brian. Uh, stay safe, stay well, and we can't wait to see you at the ring sometime soon. Thank you. Nice to talk to you both. All right. That was fun. Here's another fun topic. Coaches and their fates. Emily, when the season was paused, we had a collection of coaches that were working their way through interim, short-term seasons. And maybe it's time to take a gander and think, okay, let's assume, I don't know, let's assume the season's canceled. Let's assume that hockey's done until 2021 season. What happens to these people? Or have any of them earned the chance to come back and coach these teams next season? Will the bizarre circumstances of this season create a circumstance in which they come back to coach next season just because it'd be easier than trying to find a new coach given how short the offseason could be? Who's to say? Let's start with and Bob Bubner. The one thing I would say is it's oh, not yes, even please. it's not even the fact that they don't want to go through a search because it's a truncated timeline or whatever that I think teams are starting to look at their finances a little more and being a little stingier about that and saying, Hey, am I really in a position to pay two coaches right now? Or, Hey, if this guy's an interim, can I get him on the cheap next year? If this is his first job, I mm-hmm. do really believe those conversations are going on in front offices. And I can't help but think of Chicago. There was so many rumors and mumblings that I heard that this could be it for Stan Bowman and Jeremy Colleton, that, they were going to look for a change after the season. And then all of a sudden, the NHL goes on pause and Rocky Wirtz comes out and is like, nope, they're both coming back. And I have to wonder, does the state of the NHL and the uncertainty that we have lead that ownership group and management group to believe, you know what, it's just easier to stick with status quo to get through this? It's a good point. Are, are you trying to say that there's a good chance that Jeff Blaschel will be back next year for Detroit? Okay, that is the one example where I know they want to get rid of that guy. What if they don't want to pay Gerard Gallant? Like, what if they, they're just like, hey, this guy works cheap. We're not going to yeah. be any good again. The Illich family will have to make that choice. I do believe they are looking to move on from Jeff Blassell, though. Uh, some of these guys, though, you mentioned this and you opened it up, of who's earned the job. Jeff Ward in Calgary. I I think he's earned it. I think the guys respect him. He seems ready for the opportunity. I would be surprised if he doesn't come back next year. Bob Jeff, Wooner, Ward, and I'm gonna... Jeff Ward's 24-15-3 during his run after taking over for the uh, shamed uh, resigning Bill Peters. Uh, and I agree. I mean, I mean, Calgary muscled their way into being a playoff team. They found their offensive flow. I, I mean, you make the case for Jeff Ward for me. 
Buck Bugner is a really interesting one because he came out and said, I expect to be back next year. And Doug Wilson, to my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong, said he has as good a chance as anybody and he gets first looks. Is that yes. how they categorized it? Yes. What is your take uh, being in San Jose? I, I don't I don't know. That's a good question because I, I think in the Sharks case, it's still a extraordinarily win now team. And is there an option out there that would be better for a win now team than Bob Bugner? I don't know. Like, there's I feel a lot like of Bu- coaches available. There are right, and I they think could Bugner do the swap and get done, Gerard Gallant. <laughs> absolutely, his name's going to come up again in a second. I think Bugner is an interesting choice in, insofar as I think that they played better defensively with him as the head coach. Uh, they shored up some some problems that they had earlier in the season. I think he's soldiered through some pretty bad injury stretches for this team too. Um, he's done some things that would make you believe that uh, he should get a shot. Um, I, I think that might be a situation of is there a better option available? And if not, then we're comfortable bringing this guy back. Uh, I think that could be a possibility. Um, Rick Bonus. Now, this is the one that I wanted to talk about with regard to Gerard Gallant. Um, hmm. Jim Dill and Gerard Gallant have a relationship. Uh, I think that they wanted to get Gallant before he went to Vegas. Bonus has done fine. 2013 and 5. But I mean, it was sort of an, again, an emergency situation taking over for Jim Montgomery after Montgomery got fired so abruptly because of his personal off ice issues. Uh, I don't think this is the long play of, out of all the teams that we're going to talk about. This is the one where I'm, I'm fairly certain that the guy coaching the team isn't necessarily, it might not even be the guy that wants to coach the team next year as in a head coaching capacity. Um, but to me, this is, Detroit would be a really logical place for Gerard Gallant to end up just because it's a great organization. He's got a lot of history there, gets to work with Iserman, and they're a team that's building uh, versus being a team that needs to contend right now. But it wouldn't shock me to see Gallant in, in Dallas to replace Bonus for next season either. A guy I want to talk about is Elaine Nazardine. That's Oof. an interesting situation with the Devils, mostly because it's so much of it is contingent on what they do with general manager. A lot of us assumed, especially after the first bit of the trade deadline, holy cow, Tom Fitzgerald is general managing for his life right now. He has proved in the interim role he deserves this. He made some great deals, got back some great returns. We're not going to talk about that Wayne Simmons deal because it just seemed like a favor for a friend. (laughs) Um, And meanwhile, management is like, hold on, or ownership rather, we're not ready to give you the job quit just yet. We want to have a full search. And, you know, they haven't been able to interview other guys with other teams based off of the way the season has gone. They have talked a lot with, who was it, Gillies? Uh, uh, Mark Gillis, yeah. The, uh, Mark Gillis, uh, or, yes, sorry, yes. Mike, sorry, Mike Gillis, geez. Mike Gillis, mm-hmm, yeah. uh, who is the, Farm, uh, the former general guy. manager of the Vancouver Canucks they've talked to, yeah. Yes. But um, they seem, and this is the same ownership group that owns the 76ers, inclined to do things the analytics way, talk to as many people as possible, see who fits their point of view and their vision for the team. Um, Elaine Nazardine has done a very good job because the Devils have been far more competitive under him than they have John Hines. They have climbed up a little bit of the standings. That said, goaltending has also turned around, and Mackenzie Blackwood has played very, very well for mm-hmm. them over mm-hmm. the last couple weeks leading up to this. Um, I don't see Elaine Nazardine as a long-term answer unless Tom Fitzgerald gets the job and it's like, this is my guy. Yeah. Or, or unless somebody else gets the job and they're, and they look at, at 
being in, you know, the other bookend rebuild to Ray Shiro's tenure there where he came into a rebuild, now they're in a different rebuild, and, and they say, look, you know, we're not going to be any good next year. Just have this guy be the caretaker for another season, and then we'll figure it out after that. Um, but again, I, I, he's made a decent case for him himself here to be the head coach, uh, more than I ever thought he would. Uh, and like you said, a lot of that probably goes, speaks to how good Mackenzie Blackwood's been. But some of it well, we also thought he to- was going to be a babysitter. And yeah, we all thought that. The kids. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he's done pretty well. Finally, Dean Evison. And this is the really weird one because the wild played incredibly well <laughs> under Dean Evison, like climbed back into a playoff race, scoring goals left and right. This guy's been waiting his entire career to get this, this shot. Everybody seems to be really into him being the head coach. The players responded in a very, very solid and significant way. And yet when Bruce Boudreau was fired, the first thought for everybody was, okay, this is going to be Bill Guerin getting his guy in there, calling up his buddy Dougie Waite and being like, all right, bud, here's your second chance, old Islanders friend. And it could still very much be like that. Anybody from the Penguins, anybody from the Islanders days, anywhere else, you know, Guerin's played. But Evans, Evanson in 12 games made a pretty strong bid for this gig. I, I don't know. I, I, it's, it would be hard for me to think that, okay, this this audition went so well, and then all of a sudden we just kick him kick him to the curb. But that's that might be how it works out, just because Billy wants to get his own guy in there. All right, now it's time for our favorite, favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. A weekly oh, we look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Oh. Good one. It's Phil Kessel loves hot dogs, which examines the hyperbole and general nonsense that comes from the hockey media at times. Uh, like, for example, natural selection of NHL teams during a pandemic. Damian Cox of the Toronto Star argues that the NHL will come back stronger if the coronavirus shutdown kills off some franchises. Quote, fewer teams could make the NHL stronger coming out of this crisis. Uh, he does, to his credit, identify one Canadian franchise, Ottawa, uh, as being one that maybe could fall by the wayside. He also lists Florida, uh, Arizona, who he seems blissfully unaware has an owner that has enabled them to spend to the cap. He lists the New York Islanders, who he says has have struggled without a permanent home, apparently unaware they're building an arena for the team they're going to move into in short order. Uh, Carolina has, quote, been wobbly for years, forgetting that, you know, a guy who just spent a billion dollars or whatever it was in a football league owns the team. New Jersey, Buffalo, and Nashville could, quote, also face big financial challenges. There you go, Emily. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight teams. Just get rid of them. Just let it, let it, let the, let the kind of coronavirus kill off these franchises, some of whom have been, uh, wildly successful or, and some of them, some of whom have strong ownership now. Just get, get, make, get rid of them and, and, and there you go. Contraction through coronavirus, the Damian Cox plan for the NHL. Did he mention his plan to put two additional teams in Quebec City? Because that's usually <laughs> where this correlates. Not sure if that was the case, but uh, hey, listen, if it happens, it happens, right? If it so happens that a bunch of Sunbelt teams go by the wayside and, you know, Markham and Saskatoon finally get their teams. Boy, funny how that would work out, right? I just uh, want to listen- put out a shout out to Saskatoon. One of the Why? finer Canadian cities I've been to. I love Saskatoon. I would rather there be an NHL team in Saskatoon than Winnipeg. I mean, you and I could probably end up in Saskatoon if they have a nice hockey arena that could hold no fans in August. Who's to say? Maybe that'll be the Who's place. Who's to say? 
Uh, listener mail before we get to puck headlines. Uh, Doug McLaughlin wants to know if the NHL returns without fans in the building, is there any plan to pump sound in? Could there be an app for fans to cheer or jeer in real time? Holy smokes. Forget that Great first idea. part of the question. How about that second part of the question? I want to send this directly to Steve Mayer. I don't know <laughs> if he has this idea. Because think of the way they can monetize the app as well. All the yeah. ads they could sell in the app and get fan engagement. I think that's genius. Doug Doug has literally invented remote fanning uh, on this podcast. Remote spectating, if you will, where you're watching a sporting event and you press a button and you either your cheers or boos. That's insane. Reminds me of the old bubble hockey games when you would have the USA versus USSR. There'd be yeah. a button on the side that you could press to have the crowd cheer and get it going. That's awesome. Oh man, Doug, that was a great question. And yeah, I, I, well, to answer your question, you know, we have no idea. Like, what are we, you know, app creators? But if, if the NHL is listening, get on it, right? If you're doing these empty arena games. But the thing is, is the NHL would never do it right, which is to actually have like a ref you suck button or a singing <laughs> sweet Caroline button. I mean, cheers and jeers, but also the whole fan experience has to, has to happen. DJ Malone, what is your favorite piece of hockey memorabilia that you own, Emily? Oh, that's a great question. Um, in high school field hockey, we used to have battle buddies. Um, so it was like a girl on the team who you, you know, would give hype up things for the game. And my battle buddy my senior year was a junior named Aaron Bashwitz, and we were both huge, huge Rangers fans. We loved the Rangers. And um, I think for the la- the state championship game, she gave me a Marc Messier-signed photo, which Whoa. I don't know if her dad knows that she gave me. Um, but then <laughs> it was, like, plastered on a piece of um, construction paper with glitter, so I had to take that off and put it in my dorm room uh, freshman year of college. But that is by far my favorite. <laughs> That's hilarious. She, like, stole it from her dad's rec room or yeah, something. Yeah, probably. Sorry, Steve Bashowitz, you. if you're listening. Um, my, I, I don't know if I've ever talked to, about this on the show before, but my favorite piece of hockey memorabilia that I own is a uh, smashed shot accuracy target from, I think, was the Montreal All-Star game. Uh, that I remember Jonathan you telling Taves, me about this. Yeah, Jonathan Taves uh, hit it with a puck um, during shot accuracy. I rescued it from a dumpster. That was downstairs in the bowels of the arena as we were walking towards the uh, uh, player interview room. I just saw it. I'm like, yoink! I'm like, it's tra- it's someone else's, it's someone else's treasure instead of being trash. And uh, one day I'll get, I'll get Johnny Taves to sign it for me. I think to complete the uh, memorabilia awesomeness. But uh, all right, you you mentioned getting things from dumpsters. Yes, I'm going to show you and only you Thank my you. best piece of memorabilia sports in general. Is that Scotty this Pippen? is a bust of Bo Jackson. Oh, Bo Jackson. <laughs> that he physically posed for. It's ceramic. It's heavy. When Sports Illustrated was moving offices from the iconic Time and Life building down to uh, 225 Liberty, um, this was in someone's office. And they're like, we just can't take it. And it was in the dumpster. And I salvaged it. I brought it home to my roommates then in New York who said, that's really creepy. That'll never go up in our apartment. And I vowed when I had my own place, it would have a prominent, prominent place. And, and it, it here did. it is, me and Bo. You had it right on your bookcase. That's amazing. Some people have like busts of Plato or Caesar. You have Bo Jackson. I've got Bo. Two sport athletes. I'm, I'm stroking his head as we speak. It's a little. And it's a really good that. likeness. It kind of, it's kind of creepy. It looks like kind of like a Westworld uh, uh, android being made. He in your posed apartment. for it. Yeah, it's awesome. All right, now on to puck headlines. Dateline, Toronto Maple Leafs. This is a breaking story. As we did the <laughs> podcast today. 
developing. Mitch Marner tweeted that he is uh, doing a, a thing with kids' help phone. Um, it's important, very important, to have um, kids writing letters of e- to each other in support of each other during this time. It's a great idea. It's kids' help phone uh, on Twitter at kids help phone and kids help phone dot ca slash never alone. The URL. It's all very important. That said, Mitch Marner posted a letter that he wrote um, to hockey fans. That's very nice. It says, I miss hockey. I miss all of you, too. It's hard to be inside and not to be able to do the things that we love. It's really hard knowing some of you are scared and worried about what's happening around the world right now, and you're not alone. Very beautiful. Clearly not Mitch Marner's handwriting. Clearly he had a woman write this for him, and it's thought that maybe it's a girlfriend. Uh, because, uh, I mean, you tell me. You tell me, you, this is something that one of your friends would write, right? Like this penmanship? Yeah, this does look like the notes that were passed to me in third grade from my friends Claire and Isabel. That mm-hmm. said, what if it is him? Are you going to feel guilty? I'm going to feel real guilty, but I just don't think that it is. I mean, there's a, there's Steph, a signature on the letter that would seem to indicate the level of his, um, penmanship. That said, the 16 in his signature does seem to maybe match the six in the handwriting. Mm. And a signature inherently is a very loose and fast. You want to be very efficient to get as many signatures as possible. Most guys don't make those very intricate like his typical handwriting is. I don't know, man. This it's It seriously does look like a, a note that would have been passed to me by a girlfriend in middle school. It seriously does. But hey, if he's got great penmanship, all power to him. My handwriting sucks. Uh, Dateline uh, Zoom. Keandre Miller's chat with fans was hijacked by Zoom bombers who filled that chat with racial slurs. The New York Rangers and the NHL condemned the act. And I've been told the FBI has been contacted about this incident. The Zoom bombers actually said that the um, racial slurs were from the FBI, which is never really a smart decision. The FBI generally frowns upon that sort of activity. Uh, this was an, a horrible story. Um, it's obviously not the first time racism and hockey have been intertwined. But in this case, as you and I talked about last week, you know, it's more of a Zoom problem than anything else. It is. Uh, this is happening in Zoom calls in workplaces across the country and the continent, probably the world right now. It's happened with politicians. They don't have the security to handle this. And just shame on Skype, who blew a 3-0 lead um, to be the <laughs> official carrier of the 2020 pandemic. Um, I think they have slightly better security measures than this. That said, it is a shame that this happened to this young man who I know our Chris Peters has met a couple times and has profiled and seems like a great role model for the hockey community. Yeah. Um, it sucks that he had to go through this early in his career, but it does warm my heart of how many of his teammates I saw that did step up for him and others in the hockey community. And I think most of us know this is not acceptable right now, and it just is really, really sucky that it still happens. That was great to see the hockey community rally around Keandre for all this nonsense. I do wonder where the Zoom came from. Like we talked about earlier this morning when we were talking about the show. Like Zoom came out of nowhere. It was one of these things where people are like, how do I stay in touch with my friends and my classmates? And they're like, well, obviously you're going to use Zoom. Like what? 
Oh yeah, Zoom, you know, it's the thing you use to stay in touch with your friends and your classmates. And then everybody was started using Zoom. And uh-oh, Zoom's got crazy security flaws. Who's to say it's an unvetted thing that all of a sudden popped into society? You know what I'm waiting for, by the way? I'm waiting for the first industry to start bombing uh media with PR spin about how their thing helps you during coronavirus pandemic. Like, when's the car wash industry start being like, you know... uh no one's said yet that waxing your car won't help with coronavirus. And then every newspaper in the country writes about it. And then all of a sudden there's lines at the car wash place because maybe it does something good for coronavirus. There's going to be some business, some corporation, some genre of the business world struggling right now that somehow is like, you know, there hasn't been a scientific study that says wearing scarves won't help you during Corona. And everybody's buying scarves. Like it's going to happen. Guaranteed. Dateline Austin Matthews. What was the bigger surprise this week, Emily? His tie-dyed poisoned concert t-shirt or his cameo on Justin Bieber's Instagram Live? Um, I'd have to say the poison t-shirt. I'm a little done with Justin Bieber tries to cozy up with young <laughs> NHL stars. I feel like that's a storyline that's very all-star game 2020 uh, with him and Jordan Biddington. Meanwhile, this tie-dye t-shirt compared... Uh, combined with the tie-dye t-shirt that Jack Eichel sported in his video announcing his support for Bauer and distributing medical masks to hospitals. I mean, did we know that we have two of the finest Coachella wannabe hockey players in our midst? And that's my real question as someone who is old enough to have lived through hair metal. Um, Does Austin Matthews like, like hair metal or does he, is he just Coachella, is he just Coachella couture with this shirt? It's Coachella Couture for sure. Okay. Glad I mean, he, he's already told us how interested in fashion he is. That's it, right. It's a, it's a statement. It was, it yeah. was a very uh, deliberate choice. I would agree. And there's absolutely no way he knows any lyrics to Unskinny Bop. Uh, Dateline Seattle. The NHL Seattle expansion team hopes to announce its nickname, nickname sooner than later, according to general manager Ron Francis. If you were the, if you were Seattle, would you just wait until kind of we get back to some sense of normalcy or do you drop this bomb while everybody is cloistered and has nothing to talk about? I think first week of May sounds great. That's when most states with reasonable governors are going to have to announce to their citizens you are staying in for another month. Everyone's going a little stir crazy and all of a sudden you just can capitalize on at least a day and a half of the news cycle and, and dominate it. Mm. Finally, Dateline, Greg and Emily. As we finish uh, every episode during this pandemic, we say now, what are we watching or binging at this point? Anything mm. you've caught on recently? You're still, you're still working your way through Beartown, right? Yeah, I, I'm almost done with Beartown. Um, a buddy recommended to me Broadchurch, a British drama. Have you seen this? It's good, yeah. Because yeah, um, yeah, David Tennant from Doctor Who was on it. And yes, I, I yes. Watched the first Olivia Coleman's in it as well. Excellent, excellent first season. A little slow moving, great acting, um, just crime in a small town vibe. Uh, it's a beach city somewhere in the UK that kind of reminds me of Cape Cod because I go there as a kid. Second season has Phoebe Wells Bridge in it, Waller mm-hmm. Bridge, which is incredible, which brings me to my weekend activity, which I'm so excited about. Did you see <laughs> this? Amazon is streaming Phoebe Waller Bridge's Fleabag stage show for charity. You pay five I saw, bucks and you get to watch it, and it goes to um, 
freelancers and healthcare workers and those in the theater industry in the UK. And she, I think she's coming up with a US charity as well. That's awesome. I did see that and that's amazing. And I'm very happy about that. I thought you were going to say your weekend activity coming up soon is the fact that Killing Eve is coming back, which is very exciting. Um, although I, I don't really kind of know where they're going based off of the end of last season. But uh, if you haven't seen Killing Eve, b- binge that for yourself before the show comes back because I think you'll find it super compelling. And uh, Villanelle is one of the best TV characters of the last 25 years. Also, I watched Star Trek Picard for all my Trekkies out there, and it was not good. Uh, I was very disappointed by it. Had some sweet moments, but uh, I don't want to spoil anything. But, man, there is a lot that happened in that show that they just kind of glossed over and waltzed their way. It did give me a chance, though, during the CBS All Access free preview to go back and watch some original Next Generation stuff, which was good. So there you go. Ooh, nice little plug there for CBS All Access. I know, I, and I, I, I'm sure, you know, I'm pissing off somebody at the company, but hey, you know, there's free trials all over the place, and, and CBS okay, had one, was... and it gave me a chance to binge Picard, because I wouldn't have paid for it otherwise. That's going to be my final question to you. How many free trials are you currently participating in? Uh, <laughs> um, at least three. Uh, CBS All Access, just to watch Picard. I'm going to get rid of it at, right afterwards. Uh, I think there's a free preview of Epics or, or that's happening right mm. now on, on my on YouTube TV that we're a part of. Um, and then there might be the same thing. That, uh, there's something else that I've, I've, I've got. I don't think – is Quibi a free, a free trial time or no? That's so funny because this morning before the show, I just downloaded it and I was going to explore that later today. So that's going to yeah. be my I – th- I think it's like a first month free or something, maybe 10 days yeah. Maybe I mean, an hour. I think, like I think, Quibi, I'm though. sure it's great. It's, uh, for those who don't know, it's the thing where it's like short form video. I will repeat a tweet from yesterday and I, I'm sorry for not remembering who, who wrote it that made me laugh out loud that said that Quibi seems like if you had to pay for the TVs they have at gas pumps, which I thought was a <laughs> really hilarious line. Or taxi TV. <laughs> right. Or taxi TV, right. Oh, there you go. TV. Shout out New York City, baby. Oh my God. <laughs> taxi I, TV. Honestly. The little things that you like, you're not going to take for granted again. And anytime I get back from a work trip and I get in a taxi to get from O'Hare deck down to my apartment mm-hmm. and they're playing that and I just want to mute it. And there's nothing more infuriating in my life than watching some Chicago themed Jeopardy question that's going to morph into something. I don't know. I yeah. will savor those moments when I get to listen Indeed. to that again. Indeed. All right. That's the show for uh, this week. We will uh, talk to you next week. Our thanks to Ryan, our producer, for pulling it off again. Uh, I'm Greg Wyshynski. You can read me on ESPN.com. Uh, my column, The Wishlist, runs on Thursdays. Also, Puck Soup Podcast, the other podcast to do with Naughty Words. Uh, recent addition to the Puck Soup family on our bo- bonus Patreon uh, site. Uh, a Top Chef podcast called Mise en Pod with myself, my wife Ruby, and Ryan Lambert talking about Top Chef each week and uh, apparently... Emily is angling to get on that show at some point. Apparently. I, t- I told you my intentions last week. I don't think that's apparent. Uh, I'm Emily Kaplan. You can follow me on Twitter at Emily M. Kaplan. And um, you can read my story this week about NHL players who are trying to get through quarantine by adopting dogs. Aww. All right, everybody. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.